what would it take for you to feel like I've lived a life that matters? I lived a life that made a difference. What would you have to do in order to accomplish that? I heard an, um, a pastor speaking recently, and he was talking about uh, director um, Sidney Pollock and how he was getting much older and he was getting very sick and he had, had not spent a whole lot of time um, with his family. And so his family was saying, look, you don't have much time left. We want you to spend more time with us. We, we want you to, you know, to be with us more before you die. And he felt so compelled that a year after he made a movie that he needed to then justify again his existence by making another. And so he worked late into his life. And you've probably seen those kinds of folks in the media and TV and stuff where you find people who uh, are, are just pushing themselves and then they get to a certain age and you, they get to a certain level of health and they just can't seem to stop. I mean, how many years, for those of you who are fans of the Apple company, how many years do you see Steve Jobs standing on a stage and he just looks horrible and, and emaciated and waif-like, and the guy is, is dying in front of our eyes, and he's still acting like, hey, I'm going to tell you about this great product. And it's, they're great products, but what are you producing? He was trying to justify his existence by the things that he did. He was trying to justify, to self-justify this is why I exist, what I'm here to do, and, and he's trying to make something in him go, okay, maybe then by the end, when they write the book about my life, they'll finally say, he did enough, or she did enough. The reason that happens is because we are law people. I want you to, I want you to pay attention to this now. I want you to think this through. You are made for the law. Matter of fact, in the beginning of the Bible, when man and woman are made, what are they given? Yeah, I mean, it's that simple. They're, they're given rules. They're given the things to do because they're made to do that. No, there's no disobedience. There's no sin. And so they're given, this is what you can do and this is what you cannot do. That doesn't mean it was a bad thing. It, it was a good thing. It was a good thing because they didn't have anything bad in them. They were made perfect. They were righteous. But they were given choices. They were given the ground rules of what you can and cannot do. They're given the boundaries upon the things they can enjoy and the things they cannot. The things that are theirs and the things that are for God alone. They were given the law. They were given the rules. And they could keep them. And I would assume, at least for a short time, they did keep them. And then they break the rules, and of course we know that as the fall or when sin enters the world, and, and now we're a part of a world in which there is sin. But there was no need, imagine Adam and Eve without sin going, hey, you know what? I really need you to forgive me for the way I was treating you. Would that even be a category in their head? There's no sin, so there's no need for forgiveness. They're not built in to, to a world in which forgiveness is needed or necessary because there's no sin. So with Adam and Eve, people who have everything going right, who have everything right in them and outside of them, they simply need law. And it is refreshing. It is good. It is life-giving. And they walked with God. So when sin enters the world and God starts to point forward to there's something that's going to happen in which you will be forgiven if you put your faith there. Now all of a sudden there's these things that have to happen that cannot just sort of naturally happen. They're unnatural for us to seek out forgiveness or to feel the need to be forgiven. The, we're law people. We're created that way. And so guess what happens in the world. We have churches. And then people show up in those churches who don't know Jesus. And guess what happens? What do they want from the preacher? Law. One of the most common complaints that is found in any church is, I, I need you to be... Wow. I was like, hey. Like, the, the angels were singing suddenly. 
Woo! Pastor's saying something right. By the way, how is there not a harp playing during a mighty fortress? Did you not feel like that? Like a harpsichord or something? Right? He should have been wearing like a monk's robe. It would have been so cool. <clears throat> so when you come into a church, what, what's, the, what's the most common complaint? And, and I'll just bet that you guys have made some of these same complaints, and, and so have I. I just, you know what? I just need to be more practical. I need you to show me more like what to do. What do we want? We want the law. We want rules. We want, show me, show me what to do. Show me like what's next and how to do that thing. Tell me what those rules are so that I can go and do them. What is different about Christianity and the rest of the religions of the world? What's different? Every religion in the world is about law. This is what you do in order to be approved by God. What's different about Christianity? It's grace. It's the grace of God. It is not what you do. It's what he has done. And yet what happens is, is we, we form these churches and then people come in and they're like, you know what you need to do is you need to give me more things to do. And it's not that you don't. It's not that you say, well, we should be as impractical as possible. Because every one of you are doing things practically right now as you sit. And when you leave, you're going to do things practically. There's going to be application in your life. There are real things to do. But the fear that I have is that people will leave and they will try to do those things, even when it's not like a conscious thing. You will do those things for the approval of God rather than because of the approval of God. Being practical, doing things, having application, that, that's all great. But if our greatest application, if the foundational application is not faith, trust, rely upon Christ and his work, then when you're told to go do works, you will do them to be accepted rather than because you are accepted. So Galatians is the the letter, the one letter of Paul in which he goes into the most detail, trying to help us to understand the, the law, the doings or the not doings versus faith, versus grace, versus the free gift of God, the hard work of men and women or the free gift of God. So when Paul writes this letter to the Galatian church, he's got a church that is moving the gospel out of the way. They're being told, you've gotten something right, but it's really not enough. It's not the full thing. If all you have is trust in God and you will be forgiven, that's not good enough. Now you need to do things. Specifically for them, it was to do the things of the Old Testament law. So they would add the ceremonies and circumcision and, and the, the, the festivals and the, you know, the feasts and all of that stuff. They had to add those on top of the gospel, or otherwise they didn't have the gospel. That's what they were being taught by the Judaizers, the false teachers. And what Paul is saying is, the minute you say Jesus plus anything, you don't have Jesus. The minute you say Jesus plus anything... The Jesus you have is not the Jesus of God, is not the Son of God, is not the Son of Man, is not the Savior of the world, is not the substitution that is in our place on the cross and taking what we deserve so that he can clothe us in his righteousness and give us what we don't deserve. If we do not have faith in Christ and in him alone, and we add something, then we have subtracted him. Which is why... My friend wrote a book called Jesus, Jesus plus nothing equals what? You may know? Everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Which then means Jesus plus something equals nothing. You have nothing. So when Paul writes this letter to the Galatian church, he's saying, okay, you've You've moved away, you, you've abandoned the real gospel, that you're turning to another gospel. It's not, it's not a real gospel, but it's, you're, you're creating another gospel that's false. It's not going to get you anywhere. Paul is explaining 
over and over again. For four chapters, he is explaining time and again this one simple truth that it is Jesus plus nothing else. We get to chapter 4 and we talk about that inheritance. Remember that? If you've been here over the last couple of weeks, we talk about that inheritance that comes to those who are his. For those who are sons. You know, the firstborn son and the idea of the blessing passing to the firstborn son. The inheritance that comes. Being heirs of Christ is to have faith in Christ alone and in nothing or no one else. And then Paul seeks to give an example. And then we're going to move into chapters 5 and 6 in the, in the weeks to come. And it's, he's going to start talking about what we do, but he does it in such a life-giving, freeing way. Listen as he kind of closes these first four chapters on how to help us understand the law and the gospel, the, the, the things that we do versus the grace of God in the examples of Hagar and Sarah. Chapter 4 of Galatians and verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are the two covenants, one from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is one of those sections when I used to read through Galatians just on my own, you know, when I'm in seminary or as a young Christian. I remember reading through and going, Ah, you know, Old Testament story, it just kind of, it's whatever. You just, you just kind of pass through it and go, I want to hurry up and get to chapter 5, because he says, for freedom Christ set us free. Hey, that sounds good. Let's talk about freedom. I don't want to talk about allegories of Old Testament stories. That doesn't sound really exciting, but this is a really important text. He starts off with the question. It's one of those questions that is meant to disarm the hearer or the reader, it says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? The Galatians are desiring, the whole reason Paul is writing them, is they're desiring to be again under the law. In other, in other words, they want to have those, those Old Testament, those works. They want to not have just a grace-based faith. They want to have something that's based on works. And so what happens is, is Paul asks this question in order to disarm them. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? In other words, if you want law, if you want rules, so whether you think of Old Testament or not, just in your own life, we do the same thing. We just don't necessarily do it with the Old Testament law. We just do it with our own rules. To be a Christian is to be someone who believes and trusts in Jesus, and then they can't do this, and they have to do this, and they can't do this, and they have to do this, and then we just make our own checklist. We make our own Ten Commandments. We have our own things. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so we all can do this. I don't just think this is a, a story for people who have applied the Old Testament law because you apply law to your lives all the time. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? In other words, the very thing you're saying you need and want to be under tells you not to be under it. You got you to get that. That's what his question means. The very thing you desire to be under, thinking that's better for you, 
is the thing. That thing tells you not to be under it. And he explains. For it is written. And by the way, what's the most important word in Scripture? Does anybody remember what I say? Word for. F-O-R. Whenever you see it, underline it, circle it. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Don't you hear what the law is telling you, really? For. So now he's going to give reason. Now he's going to explain why that question is given, why he's making that point. For it is written. I'm trying to talk over here. Um, it's not a very obedient child. All right. I know, that's right. If only I could speak baby, yes. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave and one by the free. You remember the story, right? The promise comes to Abraham. What's the promise that comes to Abraham? What does God say is going to happen? He's going to have a son. He's going to have offspring that's going to have more offspring, and then eventually how many offspring is he going to have? Count the stars in the sky, not under the city lights, but, you know, go out in the country, start counting the stars and try to see how many, how many can you count. Go to, go to the ocean, go to the beach, and then start to count the grains of sand. That's how many offspring you're going to have. It's going to be like that. So the promise comes to Abraham that you're going to have a son. And when the promise comes to Abraham, he's, you know, in his mid-20s, right? No, no, he's old. He's old, like Bob Melhorn old. Like really, really old. <clears throat> Sorry, Bob. I've got to pick on somebody. I'll pick on somebody else old the next time, like Wayne or something. Yeah, I'll just, yeah, I'll, I'll pick on you. Sorry. Okay, so, so he's, he's very old, and his wife is very old. But the promise is given that they're going to have a son. <clears throat> and then Abraham goes, well, that doesn't seem likely. It's just, you know, my wife's old. She's already had her hot flashes, right? She's gotten to that point where she's probably not going to produce a child in the same way. And so Abraham's wife gives Abraham who? Hagar, her, her maidservant. The, as the terminology is here, the slave woman the one who's a servant of the woman. And so Abraham, with her, has a child. By the way, this only happens nowadays in soap operas and, you know, and in bad. So this is like weird kinds of things. But they've got this amazing promise, and they just can't figure out how it can happen. And so she gives the slave woman to Abraham, and they conceive a child. That child's name is Ishmael. Anybody named their child Ishmael recently? Grandchild? No? Not a lot of Ishmaels around. So the son comes, Ishmael. And so Abraham does this thinking, Sarah does this thinking, this is how the promise of God will be fulfilled because the promise he made was something that seems impossible. So he has one son from the slave woman, but then he has one son from the free woman. Sarah, she does conceive. She does give birth. And that son's name is Isaac. But the son of the slave, now this is where it gets important here as we try to figure out where Paul's taking us. The son of the slave was born according to what? The flesh, which means it, it's the effort of Abraham to fulfill the promise. Was the promise to Abraham conditional upon what he did? What do we say? It's one-sided. It's one way. Or as Sarah would say, it's one direction. Okay? There you go. Come on. Liam is so cute. Is it Liam? Is that even his name? Liam or Ralph? I don't know what their names are. If you're laughing because I said Ralph, that means you know what their names are. Shame on you. <laughs> if you don't know what One Direction is, just move on. Stay with Scripture. Here we go. <clears throat> so, 
There's, there's the, the slave woman has a son, the free woman has a son. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, meaning it was Abraham's idea, it was Sarah's idea. It was a man-sided effort to fulfill a God-sided promise. It was man's effort to fulfill God's promise. God says, I will do this. And Abraham says, let me give you some help. What's that sound like? Jesus plus something. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. It doesn't matter how big or how difficult the promise is. It matters that it is God who makes the promise and keeps the promise. Remember in the Old Testament, there's, there's several covenants, but there's two main ones we talk about, right? You have the Mosaic Covenant. Mosaic, Moses goes to Mount Sinai, right? He gets the commandments, he, he, he gets the law, and he brings it to God's people. That covenant is two-sided. It, the only blessing comes is when you keep the law. And so what do the people say when Moses comes down with the law? We're going to do everything that God said. We'll do it all. And so Moses takes blood, and what does he do with it? Do you remember the story? He sprinkles them with the blood. Meaning, if you don't keep it, the blood's on your head. Because you have promised to keep God's law. But the covenant with Abraham, as we've said many times in the last several weeks, is one-sided. In that when the covenant's actually made, God puts Abraham to sleep. He gives him, you know, some sleep, you know, NyQuil, I don't know, what he gives, Benadryl. <clears throat> By the way, um, Benadryl, everybody with kids is like, oh, I give my kid Benadryl when we do this or they sleep. And then on the bottle it says, do not use this as a sleep aid for your child. What's wrong with us? Okay, here we go. Um, that one is probably not a direct application to this scripture. I just thought I'd bring it up. So he puts Abraham to sleep. He gives him an ambient. He puts him to sleep. And then God ratifies the covenant. The bull is split in two. God passes through the pieces. The blood is on God's head if he does not keep that promise. So God makes the promise to Abraham, you're going to have a child through Sarah. And through that child... There's going to be a land that I'm going to give you. There's going to be a people that I'm going to give you. There's going to be a blessing, not just to you and to this people, but to the whole world through you and that child. And Abraham says, okay, well, let me try this in my own effort. And he has a child through Hagar, Ishmael. And he says, this is how I'm going to make it work. And God says, no. And then his wife, Sarah, has a child, Isaac. And through that child, that's a child of promise, through that child is going to come the blessing of the world. The one who is born of the promise, not the one who is born of the flesh. The one who is born of the free woman, not the one who is born of the slave woman. So Paul says this may be, it may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. This, this is, he's saying, and this is, this is what God does, is he often, it doesn't always work out. It, some people just go crazy with this stuff, where they'll be like, I've got to figure out how to make this story and then in my life and, you know, this person has this name that's similar to that name and here we go with the Bible code and all kinds of other stuff. And we just need to knock that off. When God wants us to understand things that way, they make them very clear like somebody like Paul tells us about them. Look at the picture. He's saying, I'm going I'm to illustrate this for you. One is from Mount Sinai, meaning the covenant with Moses. Right? And the covenant with Moses made at Mount Sinai, the, 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 the law given to him. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds, this is, this is how it all fits together, she corresponds with the present Jerusalem, the, the, the Jewish people with the law, for she is in slavery with her children. Why is it slavery? You know, the, the, the most common kind of uh, slavery that you see in the world, like beyond our families, uh, and not like the illegal kinds of slavery and the really awful kinds, but just the, the normal, like every day, where you just have to follow the rules, is either at your job or in school. Am I right? How many of you in school feel like 
you've got a slave driver for a teacher, and they're demanding that you do all these things by this time and get it done. And, you know, all of you are going, oh, that school was fun for me until you said that. You know, sorry. Um, but th the point is, is you have these, these rules. You have to keep them. You have to do them. You have all this is supposed to do. What does Paul say about the law? What is the law? It is a guardian. Another way to say that is the law is a schoolmaster. The law is given to those in slavery to sin, and the law itself keeps you enslaved in that the law cannot give you life. It can only point to your death. Everybody in this room has broken laws in the United States. Everybody. And, you know, some bigger ones than others, right? Hopefully none of you have been to court in too big of a way. I remember I was a 16-year-old out driving after an ice storm to my friend's house. It's a genius, really smart. Give your 16-year-old the keys to the car during an ice storm. Smart. Um, so I'm driving to my friend's house, and I'm like, oh, you know what? This, the roads seem fine. They've all been salted. Then I turned onto a side road, and you don't turn onto a side road when an ice storm. You slide onto a side road, right? And so I just I take the turn. I'm not even going that fast, but I take the turn, and all of a sudden my car is going this way, and it just starts sliding to the side, and guess what? There's another car. And the car's parked there. And it's late. Like, I went to my friend's house at like 11 at night. So I crash into the side of this car. Lights are flipping on in all the houses around me. I'm like, oh, I'm freaking out at 16-year-old. And the police officer decides to give me a ticket. And I was like, oh, you know, this is, this is bad. So I started looking at what the ticket said, what it said I was doing. It was failure to reduce speed to avoid an accident. You can't hit the brakes harder than I was hitting them. I was trying, I was trying to, I'm not the Flintstones. My feet are not under the car, right? I, I'm, I am hammering the brakes, pumping the brakes, you know, blowing in the other direction, hoping it'll push my car. I'm doing everything I can. I wasn't failing to reduce speed to avoid an accident. I couldn't reduce speed to avoid an accident, right? Driving too fast for conditions, uh, yeah, okay, fine. But I wasn't doing that. So I remember going to court, and the, the uh, judge was a friend of my dad, Played poker with him. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, I, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't like that, I don't think. But I, I remember being in court and then like trying to sort of talk my way through it. And like everything I said, like the, the you know, the prosecutor guy, he, was, he kept was like, objection, objection. And so I was basically saying, you can't say anything because you don't know how to talk in the court. And I was just like, hey, judge, I just don't think I broke this actual law. I just, I just don't think I broke it. And uh, so he threw it out. He was like, yeah, I think it's one of those gray areas of the law. And so he threw out the ticket. And, and you know, it felt, it felt good. But, the, I, you know, my whole life I've thought back to that time and thought, the cop just gave me the wrong ticket. There's some other ticket he could have given me I could have got stuck with. And he just gave me the wrong ticket. We, we all have broken the law, no matter how big, no matter how small, the laws of, of our land and the laws of God. Matter of fact, it's interesting. You remember I talked about how we're all built for the law? In, in Romans and other places, it talks about how the law is in us. Like, we know. It's just kind of natural for us to know it's wrong to kill somebody else. The, it's natural for us to feel guilt when there's certain things that we do. Even if people haven't told us that's not the right thing to do, we just kind of have that gnawing feeling. There's something built into us. That's why we want the law. And so when you have Hagar giving, getting the... the, the this is the allegory now, right? The slave woman, she is the one from Mount Sinai. She's a slave. She is the one who is keeping people enslaved. And again, this is not blaming Hagar. This is an allegory. She is the one who's representing this promise that we have to keep it, that Abraham has to make it happen. You get it? Hagar is representing that position because she was the one in whom Abraham and Sarah decided this is how we're going to fulfill the promise of God that is God has promised to keep and not us. So when you want to represent that, she's the one to represent it. And when there is disobedience to the law of God and the covenant with Moses, then there's a curse. What, ha what happens to God's people when they disobey the law in the Old Testament? What are the big things that happen? Death is one. Exile. Right? They disobey, 
Here come the Assyrians. Here come the Babylonians. The other, the, the other countries that don't obey any of God's law, at least not in the official sense of, you know, they have God's law. The, the people who are just pagan, bad, ruthless people, God uses as a means to discipline his own people for their disobedience. It's an amazing thing that God would do such a thing. But that's how God brings about Messiah. Because through that, remember the, the, the schoolmaster kind of idea, the guardian of the law? It's to teach us our sin, because we're all going to break the law, so that we look beyond the law. The law teaches us our sin so that we look beyond the law for the remedy. I'm going to say it one more time. Listen up. The law, and this can be any type of just rule-keeping in your life, too. The law shows us our sin. How many of you made New Year's resolutions and broke them already, right? How many of you have said, hey, this week I'm going to really do this and broke it already? You're going, you're going to continue to fail to do the good things that you think you can do. You're going to have good intentions, and you're not going to follow through on them. It's just how the law works. It's not meant to make us righteous. Somebody once said, the law cannot add a puff of air into the sails of the gospel. It cannot add a puff of wind into the sails of the gospel. The law is not there to save you. It cannot. It, it, it actually makes it worse for us because it shows us how bad we actually are. But not so that we just give up, but so that we look somewhere else. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above, remember the, there's Hagar, the present Jerusalem, and then he says the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. We've been given birth through the Jerusalem above, meaning the one that is corresponding to the, the Abrahamic covenant fulfillment in Christ. How does God, as he's the one who's going to keep the promise of giving the, the blessing to the whole world. How is God going to keep that promise? He keeps it by giving the child to Abraham and Sarah, the child of promise, and then sending through that child of promise an offspring, their great, 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 great grandson, who is our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one. This sounds great, doesn't it? Rejoice, O barren one. The one who's got nothing. The one who really wants something and can't have it. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. Labor's painful, so I hear. And um, I haven't been in labor, right? You know. So just so you know, just in case you're wondering. But when... You're not in labor, you aren't giving birth to a child, and then you aren't having the joy of having that child, right? That's a, it's a blessing of God to have that child, and then when you don't have it, you're barren, and it seems like this is a bad place to be, but it is written in verse 27, and please hear me. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the one who has a husband. In other words, the, one, the, the ones who come because of the promise, it is better for them than those who have a husband, those who can give birth to as many as they want. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. In other words, true children of the Lord are like Isaac. The only reason you are a child of God the only reason you can be saved from your sin, be forgiven, the only way you can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the only way you can be accepted by God is that God fulfills his promise, not that you fulfill yours. The harder you work to fulfill your promise to God, to be accepted by God, the farther away you are from him. It is when we give up on trying to keep that promise, trying to, trying to keep those laws, trying to keep those rules, trying to be that good person, when we give up on those things and we become children of the promise like Isaac, who's born out of no will of his own. It's the will of God to do it in the most crazy of circumstances, in the, in the very old age of his parents. But just, verse 29 but just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. This is an interesting little note in here. 
in, in Genesis 21, and I'm not going to go read it, but in Genesis 21, verses 8 and 9, it talks about how Ishmael laughs, kind of mocks the persecution of Ishmael toward Isaac. It says, it says, and this is, again, putting together this allegory, just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Now look at the correspondence. The, according to the spirit and according to the promise are the same thing. You understand that? According to the spirit, according to the promise are the same thing. If you are a child of the promise, then you have to be born of the spirit, which is why when I talk to people about whether or not they are Christians, I don't just say, can you tell me things that are coming from your head? I try to see things that come out of their heart. I ask questions that are probing deeper. Because a lot of people can just regurgitate the gospel. A lot of unsaved, lost, dead people can regurgitate the gospel. They can say, this is what I believe, or this is what I trust. But you can tell the difference between somebody who trusts and somebody who does not often. The ones who are bearing fruit and the ones who do not. So just in, in this allegorical picture... At that time, the one born according to the flesh persecuted him born according to the spirit. So it is now. How is it like that now in their time? Judaizers coming in teaching there's more to the gospel than the gospel. There's works. The Pharisees. What does Jesus do with the Pharisees? What are the Pharisees saying? Do, 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 do. Right? You do all these things. And then God sees you as righteous. Your righteousness is by what you do. The righteousness you have is because you complete, you follow, you do the law. And so those, uh, and you got to get this, in the church, in the world, the people who are most likely to persecute Christians are Christians. With quotes around it. I'm doing this on audio, and nobody saw that, right, in the audio. So the, the Christians who are persecuted in the world are most often persecuted, not by the world, but by Christians who have some type of position, some type of power. Jesus comes, and what happens? The religious powers go, this threatens us. This is dangerous for us. This is bad for us. He is going, he, look at all the crowds gathering around him. As a rabbi, they're not gathering around me, but look at, they're gathering around this guy. And he's not doing the stuff that's making us so happy. We want him to follow our rules. So the persecution that comes, just like with Ishmael and Isaac, it comes from those who look at those who are free and who can't stand it. When you are one who has to follow certain, think about, if you just think about, depending on how much you read kind of outside in the, uh, uh, the Christian world and stuff, if you look at how Christians relate to one another, the most common thing that you'll find, and you see this really exaggerated on the internet, just because it's a little more anonymous and people are very much more outspoken, so you see it like on Twitter and on Facebook, and you see it also through books and other stuff. The people who have to have the law are the ones who hate the most those who are free. The ones who have to follow the rules have to also demand that you follow them. Or, or they're wrong. And they don't want to admit they're wrong. So if they have the rules, they have to demand you keep their rules. You can't go see an R-rated movie. You can't go see a PG-13 movie. You have to only watch movies of a certain type of whatever. I can't even go to a movie theater because somebody might think I'm going to watch an R-rated movie, right? This is what I've, I've had people say this to me. What? what? I, can't, I can't be in a place that serves alcohol. I know people that, at seminary that would not work in a restaurant as a waiter that would bring someone alcohol. They just wouldn't do it because they felt like it was contributing to the sin of other people, all this. And so then it not only became that, but then it became everybody else had to keep the same rules. And the school that I was at had progressively over time strengthened their rules over all the things you cannot do. Now, it's not to say that the school shouldn't have certain rules, right? Of course they should. But we have to be careful not to be the ones who hold law or, or works of some type, even if it's of our own creation, that we, that we take those rights and wrongs, do's and don'ts, and then apply it on other people and force them to keep that. 
because that is going to kill them. It's killing the Galatian church, and Paul has to write this letter in order to set them free again. And so it is those who are under law, who have rules to keep, that absolutely can't stand to be around people who really have freedom. Verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. It is simply not God's plan. It is not the fulfillment of God's promise to go and to make it happen your way. It can only happen God's way. And so if you are hearing today, you know, the gospel, you have to trust in Jesus, you have to believe that what he did on the cross can, is, is there to take our sin away, that he died for our sins, to give us forgiveness, to give us new life. And then you have to trust that, you have to believe. That's the gospel. It's not just that, but that we now need to go and trust. We need to respond some of you are going to reject and some of you are going to accept and receive. Some of you are going to hate it. Some of you are going to say it's okay. Some of you are going to say, oh, it's too simple. You don't have to do anything now. And Christians are the people who have been so set free by God that we can do everything because we don't have to do it for his pleasure. We do it because he's already pleased with us. And what great news. I, you know, Molly, I've, as I've said before, is a, a very law-oriented kind of person. And so I'll say things to her like, there's nothing that you can do that's going to make me leave you or go away or not love you or not. And that just doesn't register to her. Like the, the computer, like, you know, she starts smoke starts coming out of her ears. It just doesn't make sense. And, you know, she just kind of snaps because she's robotic, right? It's that whole, like, uh, Stepford wife thing. Um, that's why she's so attractive is because she's a, she's a creation in a laboratory. Um, The, the struggle that those who really are heavy on the law is that when somebody says, I love you because I choose to love you, I love you because I've promised to love you, and that being good enough, it's like, no, you have to love me for the things that I do. Well, guess what, Molly? If I'm going to love you for the things you do, I'm going to stop loving you because you're going to fail. Am I right? You're going to fail? Okay, maybe, maybe, maybe you won't. I, it's possible. Sorry. I've just gotten myself in a whole bunch of trouble. <laughs> but, but then, for, for me, if I only get love from her, if she only decides to love me when I do good, I'm in trouble. Right? Am I, yeah, thank you, Bob. <laughs> it's always good to hear from our elderly. Thank you. <laughs> Take that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <sighs> Next week, tomatoes will be here. Um, so, so we don't receive anything by putting our effort into it. And again, we've been, we've been railing on this for four chapters now. Because it is one core problem in the Galatian church. And dare I say, there's one core problem in any church in all of the world. Everything else that happens in life is based upon your understanding of the law and the gospel. Because everybody has built into them law, and everybody, because of sin, needs gospel. Everything else we do is based on that. And everything else you do is either based upon being accepted by God or to try to be accepted by God. Everything you do. And it doesn't matter what other religion somebody has. It doesn't matter if they have no religion, if they try to be completely secular, completely atheistic, or, or whatever else, naturalistic. It, wherever they are, whatever they do, they still have built into them the law and built into them guilt, built into them. Is it Ted Turner, I think, who said, I can, I can build these enormous companies and make millions and millions of dollars, but I can't figure out how to make a marriage work. Well, don't start with Jane Fonda. You might have a better chance, but that's just me. Isn't, isn't that right? Isn't that right? Isn't that our problem? Isn't that where we are? Is that we continue to try to add. So he finishes this way, 31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. 
If you are a Christian, if you are truly a part of His church, if you've truly been saved from your sins, all of that, it is only because you are a child of the free woman. The, allegor- the allegorical picture as well as just the real picture of you know, understanding the covenants, understanding God's promises, they're all extremely simple in that we have life only because God keeps it alone. God keeps his promise, and he's the only one who can keep it. There's nothing we can do to try to get around it. We can't go and try to have that child that's been promised in our own strength. So just a couple of quick comments, things that we can take away from this. Hopefully you already have a lot of things you can take away from this. But just a couple of quick comments, and then we'll be done. If you are a Christian... Somebody who really says, somebody who really deep down believes, who has really been saved, and you say, yes, I'm, I'm one who just trusts in Christ alone. I have faith alone in what he has done and not in what I do. Then be free. Hear this allegory, these stories from the Old Testament, and realize freedom promise. It's one-sided. It's God. The opposite side, what, is the, what are the words that are representative of it? Slavery. Flesh. Child of the flesh. It's the present Jerusalem that's full of sin and the Jerusalem above in which it's all been taken away. You see, the, the, only, the only right response to this truth is to be free. To live free, to understand our freedom, which is why that's the next verse that we'll talk about next week. We are set free in Christ. There's more to come on that. The second thing I just want to say is this the the gospel, the gospel is not just for people who can naturally be fruitful but who are barren. Did you hear that in the, in the passage? The gospel, the focus of the gospel here is on the barren Sarah, not on the fruitful, fertile Hagar. And so in this world, in this world, you can think of yourself as one or the other, as the one who, wow, I'm, I'm really good at this. I, I, when I work, I can just create these companies, I can make money, or I can you know, build these relationships, have these friendships, I'm a really good networker, I'm a really good whatever else. And you are going to try to use that. Just listen now. You are going to try to use that to be acceptable before God. You often hear a story uh, of, of a famous person, and they'll be like, okay, they, they're in... Um, athletics or they're in, you know, uh, I, I, there's, I'll, I'll use an example here in a second, it's a very specific one. They're in business um, and then there'll be a point where they'll go, you know what? This isn't, this isn't good enough. What's the kind of the famous cliched statement nobody says on their deathbed, I wish I would have spent more time at work. Where would you spend your time? Family, Right? Do you know that's just as wicked as spending the time at work? Why? Because if you're trusting in God, not just by, let's say, the the job that you do and what you achieve through your job, but if you're then saying, well, my real value, my real justification is in my family, it's just as wicked. To look to God and say, you know what? I'm going to trust, I'm going to just rely on the fact that I've just got these people around me who love me. I wish Andy Williams were singing me a Christmas song right now, right? I mean, that's what it's about. It's about family. And the person who says that can be just as much of an idolater toward family as the person who is a workaholic. Do Do you get that? This is crucial because the American gospel is that. Either you're the hard worker who achieves it through your job or you're the person who gets to the point where you realize it's really about your family. And the point of the gospel is it's neither. Neither can you be accepted by your good works. The, the real-life example I thought of was Derrick Rose. For those of you who are Chicago Bulls fans, um, Derrick Rose blew out his ACL and had to have surgery. And so I, the, the news this week was really hopping on it because 
it had been reported that he has been okayed by the doctors to go back into play. And it's been like three weeks since that's happened, and he has yet to return to play. And the doctors are saying he's physically ready, and he's, Derek is saying, I'm not mentally ready. And then Derek has put together a short string of, of tweets, uh, uh, some statements on Twitter, in which he talked about the importance of family. And he may be at that point in his life as a young man where he had all this athletic ability and now he's afraid, I'm never going to return to that place. And so he has to find something else, some other functional deity in order to feel acceptable. And it, it's, not, it's not there. If, if, you, if your job, if you blow out your knee and you can't play basketball again, you don't rely on your family. That's not going to do it either. It's in Christ alone. The gospel is for the barren. And the longer you find your own fruitfulness is what you'll be accepted by, the more you're never going to be accepted. And so our final response needs to just be faith. To put your faith in Christ. To put your trust fully in what he has done. To know that at the cross, that's where you deserve to hang. And it is only by putting your faith in Christ. It is only by trusting that he died to take away your sin so that you don't have to do a thing in order to be accepted, that he's done everything. It's Jesus plus nothing. And some of you need to give up on your works. Maybe this is the day where you just say, it's not that you're never going to do something good. It's not that you're going to not do even better things than you already do. Matter of fact, the truth is, is you're going to have, you're going to do far better at doing good works because you already know you're accepted by God than if you have to do it in order to make him happy. Because you're going to be free. You're, you're going to have motivation. You ever just feel burdened and, wow, I've just got to work really hard? It's because you're doing it to be accepted. Once you're accepted and loved, and that, that's, nobody can take that from you. Now you can just Take that long hair and your tears and go wash the feet of the Savior because you've been forgiven of much. Would you stand with me for closing prayer?